0: Unorthodox scene. I'm Noah Levinson, editor of the podcast, and we're coming to you early this week with a little bonus episode to talk about some very sad news of a very important Jew, Philip Roth, who died last week of heart failure at a hospital in Manhattan. He was 85. Considered until last Tuesday to be one of America's greatest living authors, if not its greatest, Roth was born and raised in the Waquayek neighborhood of Newark, New Jersey, which served as the nostalgic playground for many of his novels, most of which were written well after Roth, and most of the city's Jews, had left Newark during the white flight of the 1960s. Roth's fiction initially shocked and alienated much of the Jewish community that he wrote so much about, and probably never more than in his 1969 bestseller, Portnoy's Complaint, the book that sealed his fame, and for which my ninth grade English teacher sought special permission from my parents to lend to me as an introduction to Roth. In it, Alexander Portnoy delivers a 300-page monologue from his therapist's office, confessing his most grotesque masturbation stories, a host of sexual fetishes played out with Gentile women, neuroses about his Jewishness and his inability to work up a tear for the six million, and the depravity that he feared sat at his very core, all setting up one of the great punchlines in literary history, the doctor's response and only line in the book, So... (laughs) Now, we may perhaps to begin, yes?
1: All I remember is the outcry with Portnoy's complaint. Uh, People were furious. They felt that he betrayed us. Uh, Even though I don't see betrayal, I see love for the community.
0: That's Leslie Goldman-Pumphrey, one of several Jewish Wequake natives I met at the Newark Public Library's Philip Roth historical tour this past Sunday. Like many other attendees, she came not only to pay her respects to the literary giant, but also to reminisce about a Jewish community that is no more. Um,
2: The Jews of uh, Wequake were a mixed community, I would say that the large majority were not Orthodox. Many belonged to synagogues. Many did not. But we all felt Jewish, and it was as though we were in a Jewish world. We
0: might as well have been living in Israel. Miriam Epstein-Khan So, we will get back to Leslie and Miriam and the tour at the end of this episode. But first, unorthodox host and general podcasting sweetheart Mark Oppenheimer gave an interview last week to our slightly more famous half-Jewish sister show, also under the panoply canopy. I'm talking, of course, about the gist hosted by our friend Mike Pesca, who wanted to talk to Mark about how Roth defined what
3: it meant to be a Jewish American in the latter part of the 20th century he was hugely influential, I would say in two ways. Um, number one, he really influenced the Jewish conversation, like the kind of thing that you would talk about when the Passover Seder was winding down and people had had enough religion or the synagogue service was over and everybody was eating the white fish and locks and, you know, doing, doing shots of Slivovitz. What are you going to talk about? And for a lot of the century from, from 1959, when he first published, uh, his first book, Goodbye Columbus, really until, um, until today, <laughs> until this very moment, um, a lot of the conversation has revolved around. Philip Roth, and it was very often controversial, right? I mean, he was seen as an enemy of Jewish mothers because of his portrayal of, of Sophie Portnoy in Portnoy's Complaint. He was seen as um, somebody who, who aired Jewish dirty laundry, going all the way back to the portrayal of crass materialistic Jews in Goodbye Columbus. Um, so he was somebody who really influenced the conversation. But the other thing I would say is that he was much more attentive to the nuances of Jewish life and practice and religion and theology than he's usually given credit for. There are a lot of observant Jews in his novels, and there are a lot of people in reaction against religious observance. So whether you were part of a secular conversation or you were actually interested in Jewish spirituality, his dozens of novels had something for you.
4: Now, I have to say, I know the Jews. I am of the Jews. I am half Jew. And this idea that we needed someone to help us airing the Jewish dirty laundry, it seems that's something that the Jews will do without anyone prompting them. But maybe (laughs) maybe this is like um, not giving to you, Pepper's, Pepper, is just because all other music after it sounds a little like it.
3: Um, well, okay, f- fair enough, my, my pizza bagel friend. You are correct uh, as a half Jew that we are pretty good at airing our dirty laundry. And, you know, we never go too many years also without just creating all sorts of laundry. I mean, there's, you know, Bernie Madoff's A Plenty, right? That said, you have to remember that in 1959, when the short stories were coming out, you know, with regularity from this 25, 26-year-old genius, that was a period where Jews were still really struggling for acceptance. Like, you go back to a 1959 short story like Eli the Fanatic, which is included in that first collection, Goodbye, Columbus, and it's about Jews who have moved into a town that only recently was restricted to just Protestants. And so then in that story, you know, they're worried when an Orthodox guy moves into town and and is going to mess up the acceptance that has been so hard won for these Jewish assimilationists. In 1959, even into the 60s and 70s, it was a whole different story. And the idea that you could be publicly Jewish, that you could wear a yarmulke, that you could ask your business lunch to to have kosher food for you was much more difficult. Um, Today, we're living in an age of a lot more kind of ethnic pride for all groups, but he was writing Jewishly proud literature at a time when that was a much more difficult thing to do.
4: So, how does the white guy in Kansas, the the black woman in Columbus, Ohio, the uh, fairly plugged in but you know someone who doesn't know a mitzvah from a schwitz, how is that
3: person affected <laughs> by by Roth? Uh, okay, so in two ways. Um, if you're somebody who loves literature, even if you're just someone who loves laughing, he's an extremely funny novelist, uh, and he's funny about sex. So, so let me first say that that if you um, if you like laughing and if you like sex. And honestly, are, are there any two things that, on which there's more general agreement yeah. than that laughter and sex are good, right? Not in the Pence household, bo-
4: but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right,
3: exactly. Then you go to a book like, you know, like Portnoy's Complaint or a lot of his later books as well. You go to The Counter Life, uh, for example, and you have these books where there's a lot of good sex and they're very, very funny as well. So, so that's one thing is that, you know, Portnoy's Complaint was, as Frank, a book about sexuality in all of its Possibilities, all of its permutations as we had seen up until that point. There had certainly been obscene literature. There had been banned books before then. But the raw viscerality, or viscerality, visceralness of, you know, Alexander Portnoy masturbating into a piece of liver that his mother's going to cook for dinner that night, you know, th- nobody had seen anything like it. So his books really hold up as funny books and they hold up as books that are frank about sexuality. And I think even a Gentile in Kansas or an assimilated Jew anywhere – Will love that stuff. The other thing is, you know, when you say, "Well, how do people how do people relate to him?" is that he really was part of a confessional turn in American literature, uh, something that he and someone like John Updike were doing at the time, but which is really. Everywhere now is they were taking the big novel, the the sort of great novel about American life, and they were making it the domain, say, of really insecure first-person male narrators. I mean, in a sense, they were doing for fiction what poets like Sylvia Plath or Robert Lowell were doing for poetry, which was making – giving us these first-person really vulnerable, sensitive – often male, but not always, narrators rather than the sort of like on high third person Henry James kind of uh, imperious view from above. So if you like confessional literature, and again, we're living in the age of the nonfiction memoir, we all love confession. Roth was very pioneering in that too.
4: Yeah, I think you could also make the case that without Philip Roth, there is no Woody Allen. And by extension, there is no Howard Stern, or they're a lot different. And there is no Amy Schumer. And to take it beyond the—and there is no even kind of uh, more mainstream, less confrontational humor like City Slickers, which is written by a writing team where one of the writers is named Babalu Mandel based on a character in a Philip Roth book. But also, I don't know if—I don't know. I think Richard Pryor changes, and I think Chris Rock changes. And I think that there is an ineffable impact on the society
3: that Roth had that we do feel, especially in comedy. I think that's right. And, and I think you're seeing the conflation of two things there. You're seeing the coming together of two things. One is this sort of radical uh, candor, the idea of, of vulnerability, vulnerability about sexuality, about racial angst, about assimilationist angst, about ethnic insecurity, coming together also with this sort of Freudian analysis, the way that all of those people, you know, and again, this this is certainly prior, right? And also Stern, right, who, who basically just puts oh, himself absolutely. on the sofa yeah. and analyzes himself. So, and, and Roth is very attuned to that. His characters are often making references to Freud and, and mid-century, as we know from Mad Men, was the era of analysis. It was the era when, when Jews, Gentiles, middle-class people were putting themselves on the sofas and really analyzing and digging deep into their feelings. Um, Roth said the one difference between him and, and Upton Updike and Bellow was that John Updike and Saul Bellow looked outwards. They wanted to see the great American panorama. Whereas he, Philip Roth said, I like, you know, I'm digging a hole down into my own psyche and looking inwards. And I think that that's also true of all the comics you're talking about.
4: Yeah, I think early on he was – he embraced the neuroticism. I think societally we've maybe gone a little too far down that road, like recognizing it and reveling in it it without doing much to change it. But tell me if I'm wrong. I haven't read most of his later novels, but I read – what was it? The Plot Against America, the Charles Lindbergh one. Yep. It seemed that he broadened out and stopped writing so much about, but this is how artists go. First, it's about the self, then it's about the other. He did start tackling big societal issues later on.
3: Yeah. I mean, there was a trio of, of later novels, which included um, American Pastoral and I Married a Communist and The Human Stain. These are novels from the, you know, the 90s and the early aughts. By the way, he's writing these at an age when many novels have completely run out of creative steam. I mean, in, in that regard, his late work was so much greater than the late work of some of his peers. But yes, uh, he really broadened out. He was looking to pull in more and different kind of characters. You know, the, the African-American professor who's passing as Jewish in The Human Stain, for example, or the historical fiction, the sort of the World War or to counter narrative of what if Lindbergh had brought fascism to America of the plot against America. I thought I married a communist, which is a a little known or a lesser appreciated Roth book from that era, which was really revisiting the McCarthy era and revisiting people Roth did not grow up around. You know, he was famous for writing about the Jews of of Newark, the people he grew up around, but they were pretty apolitical, non-intellectual folks. Uh, In I Married a Communist, he turned towards the intellectual communist Jews of that era. And I found that book as moving as any. So I think you're right. He became more a novelist of like the great American century.
4: So, Earlier, I made reference to Woody Allen and I was going to bracket it with something like, well, the comedy, but not the, you know, weird sexism. But you know what? Maybe, <laughs> maybe a little of the weird. I mean, OK, Woody Allen and the accusations of child molestation. No. But what about the sexism in Philip Roth's book for a time? So it went from scandalous to complimented for being frank to today, maybe
3: look back as, you know, too shot through with uh, masculinity. Right. I mean, I- I think there's a fair version of that critique and an unfair version of that critique. The fair version is that for somebody with such a great interest in the, the whole human experience, for somebody who did broaden out and start writing African-American characters and female characters and and characters who weren't born in America, immigrant characters, he never did write a great female protagonist. He he really didn't seem to have access to, and maybe he yeah. just knew that he didn't have access to it. Maybe uh, he, he just realized that wasn't his, his fort, but he never did write the great female protagonist. Uh, And that's pretty apparent. Even his sort of secondary female characters often just don't seem as deeply or, or thoughtfully drawn as his male characters, the one attempt he made to write uh, a female protagonist was a really terrible novel, uh, When She Was Good, from I think 1967, which is deservedly one of the least read Philip Roth novels. <laughs> so, so that's a fair version of the critique. The unfair version is that there's something about the eroticism and sexuality uh, and, and obscenity that's misogynist. I think he was um, exploring a side that exists in all humans. All humans have a, a dark sexual fetishizing or eroticizing side that they're a little ashamed to bring to the light of day. And his characters and his protagonists did that. And I think that's a, a service to art. And I I think that there's a real unfairness. It doesn't mean it appeals to everyone. I certainly know more women than men who would say, I'm not into that, that side of Roth. Fair enough. But the fact that he's portraying it, I don't see as inherently sexist in any way.
4: It's very hard in, in a spoken interview to, uh, in some way, convey how great he was on the page on a sentence by sentence level. But if anyone can do it, it's a man who knows how to pronounce fort as not forte. So give it a shot.
3: <laughs> um, Roth was someone who operated, he had, he had several different modes. And even within a story, he could have different modes. He is the only American ever to pull off good stream of consciousness writing, you know, to, to take what someone like Joyce had done, and, you know, and I'm going to say he was better at this than Gertrude Stein was. If you read Portnoy's Complain, at first glance, you say, oh, he's just vomiting ideas onto the page. It's stream of consciousness. But the fact that it's a 200-page stream of consciousness that keeps you – entranced the entire time shows how carefully crafted and curated it was. It wasn't just him talking into a dictaphone all the thoughts that came into his head or his protagonist's head. Uh, He made Stream of Consciousness incredibly interesting. And then what he did in later novels from, from the 70s forward was he returned to the early short story version of 1959, those great works from Goodbye Columbus. And he really operated... I would say as well as anyone in the century, except maybe Bernard Malamud, who was his peer at this, at finding the poetry in regional and ethnic dialects. You know, if you look at the way that the Hasidic immigrant speaks in Eli the Fanatic, if you look at the way that the suburban Jewish matrons speak in Goodbye Columbus, those are voices that are really easy to caricature, right? You can very easily slip into blackface or shall I say Jewface, face when writing those characters. And Roth always leaves them with their dignity because they sound authentic. They sound like he knows them, that, that they live in his bones. So, okay, there's a way in which Sophie Portnoy is the, is the monstrous Jewish American mother. And Roth was hated by many Jews and decried by the Jewish people at the time for having written that character. Fair enough. But when you read her cadences, you're reading something that's really true. Uh, you're reading that he actually listened to his mother, and ultimately, listening is the real, the real gratitude that novelists show to their fellow human beings. Mark
4: Oppenheimer is the host of the podcast Unorthodox. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks,
3: Mike.
0: On the possibility of leaving behind a legacy, Roth spoke wryly through his surrogate character, Nathan Zuckerman, in The Counterlife. If you're from New Jersey, Nathan had said, and you write 30 books, and you win the Nobel Prize, and you live to be white haired and 95, it's highly unlikely, but not impossible, that after your death, they'll decide to name a rest stop for you on the Jersey Turnpike. And so, long after you're gone, you may indeed be remembered, but mostly by small children, in the backs of cars, when they lean forward and tell their parents, Stop, please. Stop at Suckerman. I have to pee. This gets a pretty big laugh on the bus that's ferrying the Newark Public Library's Philip Roth tour, which is annotated by a list of geographically specific passages from Roth's novels, read somewhat timidly by volunteers over the bus's PA system. As far as I know, there are no plans yet for a Philip Roth rest stop on the turnpike, nor was he ever awarded the Nobel Prize, a subject of some griping amongst his loyal following. And loyal they are, it takes three buses to accommodate all of the tour-goers, and in between our guide's descriptions, they chat amongst themselves about how they got into Roth, and which of his books are their favorite. A few of the excerpts feature a nostalgic wroth describing the mundanities of middle and working-class life to an equally nostalgic tour group. They worked hard, some nod approvingly. They worked hard. Weequayek is a charming, if seemingly unremarkable, suburban area within Newark's South Ward. The slightly weathered but still colorful mid-century houses sit at a small but comfortable distance from one another, and though I'd never been to Weequayek before, the images jibe pretty well with what I had pictured as I read Roth's books growing up twenty minutes away in the suburbs. Without a tour guide, you might not guess that Jews had ever dwelled in Newark. Temple Bene Jeshrin is now the Hopewell Baptist Church. Oheb Shalom is now Metropolitan Baptist. When we arrive at 81 Summit Avenue, Roth's childhood home, I'm surprised at how ordinary a site it is. A three-story, single-family detached house with yellow aluminum siding. One imagines it looks just about the same as it did when Philip lived there, save for the direct TV dish on the roof and the small informational placard affixed to the front that informs the reader of its connection to literary history. As we mole about outside, taking pictures of the place, one of the home's current occupants, a middle-aged black woman, walks up the steps to the front door, waving to us politely before she lets herself in. <laughs>
2: if you move into a historic house. Guess, yeah, you right? get to meet all the people. Wow. People love coming to your house. <laughs> that, that's really fun. I think so too. I think
0: it's great. Back at the library, I spoke to some people who had grown up in Wickwayic about what it was like to have their community portrayed by Roth. So my name's
2: Helen Lippmann. I uh, live in Montclair now, but I grew up in Newark. I lived there till 1968, the year after the rebellion or riots Um, I was 20 when my family moved out I love Newark and I always loved reading a book about places that I know I mean just like today I love going down these streets and it really made me feel good that they look pretty good and and I was very happy about that
5: it's very exciting enjoyable and I know and he has uh, meticulous attention to details, like he gets all of the things right. I think he talked to Charles Cummings at this library a lot to make sure that all the information he put in was correct. When he talked about the bus to downtown Newark it was the 14 bus. When he talked about the bus to the Port Authority in New York it was the 107 bus and those were all the same buses that I took.
2: And I remember a little bit that when Portnoy's complaint was published there was an outcry about Philip Roth being uh, a self-hating Jew, uh, that he was making fun of things he shouldn't make fun of. It was very close to the end of World War II and uh, the Jews of the community, we as children learned very much about uh, what had happened in the Holocaust, so I don't think it was the children who felt that way. I read it, I didn't feel that way, but I think I know my father felt that way.
1: My parents were not high school graduates. Uh, They were not very literate, so they repeated at the dinner table what the relatives were saying. I'm sure my mother and father never picked up a book of Philip Roth. So what I heard is what they heard, passed down at the dinner table.
5: A lot of people in the beginning were very upset about the things that he wrote. They thought that they were uh, anti-Jewish and that he was a self-hating Jew. Over time, that kind of went away. I never, I never felt that way, uh, and. Uh, you know, when he when he wrote uh, Portnoy's Complaint, that really skyrocketed to fame in 1969, and I thought it I thought it was was great, but there was a lot of a lot of people who were opposed to it. But do you, do you remember how your parents felt about Roth? No, I don't remember how my parents felt, but I do remember I was. Uh, like 25 26 I just graduated from law school I was working for a judge who was about 60 years old and he was he was he was shocked by it uh, because he at least at least he was someone who read it and was shocked by it a lot of people were shocked by it and he didn't even read it but I I thought it was was great
0: (laughs) did Roth do a good job portraying we he nailed it Um, that's the
1: high school that's the neighborhood that's the time uh, He he really described it, described the parents, the working ethics of the parents, as well as the neighborhood. Um, I think 100% he got it right.
0: Now, almost nothing remains of Newark's Jewish community, except in the cemeteries, where Jewish corpses outnumber live Jews by several orders of magnitude. After the 67 riots, most of them moved out to more affluent Jersey suburbs like Livingston and Teaneck. Kind of like a mini diaspora within the diaspora. Only this time, I wouldn't hold my breath on a return to Zion. The white flight out of Newark is one of the trickiest and most uncomfortable subjects for liberal Jews to talk about today. In a way, it represented the culmination of Jewish assimilation into the white American identity. After all, what could be whiter than fleeing a city as its black population increased? For those who'd like to immerse themselves in that struggle session, I'd recommend American Pastoral, where Seymour Levov contemplates closing the last Jewish-run factory in Newark, squeezed by the pragmatic urgings of his reactionary father and the conscientious challenges of his radical daughter. For better or for worse, the most vital recollections of Jewish life here are fictional, stowed away in the long paragraphs of Roth's stream of consciousness, just waiting to catch us off guard and evoke in us all the feelings that lie beneath the surface of the Jewish ego. Paranoia, superiority, displacement, anxiety, pride, guilt, and the rest. So now, we may perhaps to begin. Yes? Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. We'll be back in your feed at the regular time on Thursday, but until then, you can follow us on Twitter, at TabletMag, or write to us at unorthodox at TabletMag.com. Shalom, friends.